Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, where we delve into hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. A key goal of our podcast is to connect people on both sides of the Atlantic, politically, economically, and socially. And that, I can tell you from experience, is not easy. It's even harder on platforms dominated by language and popular culture like television. But today's guest, Anna Winger, has managed to do just that in her Emmy and Peabody winning works. Her latest project, in fact, is called Transatlantic. The seven-part series that debuted on Netflix in April is inspired by Julie Oranger's novel The Flight Portfolio and the experiences of Varian Fry, Mary Jane Gold, and Albert Hirschman, who risked their lives to save over 2,000 Jewish and anti-Nazi refugees during World War II. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for having me. Before we delve into your binge-worthy series, let's find out more about you, an American transplant to Berlin who, like me, decided to make Germany their home. What drew you here to Germany's capital when you moved here in 2002? Honestly, love. Um, I That's always a here. good story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I met my husband in Chile, so I didn't know that Germany was going to be part of the plan, but we moved here when we got married. That was now more than 20 years ago. And had you ever thought about Berlin before that? or Definitely not. Well, you're Jewish, and your parents are anthropologists living on the East Coast, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. What did they think of you marrying a German and moving here? You know, I think by the time it came to pass, I actually met my husband when I was really young. I met him when I was 20. And by the time and I moved here when I was in my 30s, so we knew each other as friends, as, you know, we'd had romance on and off throughout the years. I think by the time I moved here, we had all developed an interest in it. You know, I think Berlin, I always say that Berlin happened to me. You know, I wouldn't have chosen it, but it's been, it really is my chosen home. And it's become such a rich source of creative life for my work, for my imagination. And of course, I've raised my family here as well. So that truly is where we live. It's our home in so many different ways. But I feel very grateful, actually, that this came to pass. Well, the city has changed a lot in the last two decades that you've lived here. Do you think that's been for the better, the change has been for the better or for the worse? Well, both, right? I think, of course, it's much more difficult to find an apartment. Things are more expensive and so forth. At the same time, I think it's become much more international. I think it's a very tolerant place. It's a place that brings people together who would never meet anywhere else. I think there's something magical about that. It's not such a black and white answer. You know, I think Berlin is a place that's constantly evolving. And I think it's been a privilege to be both an eyewitness to that process, but also a part of it. What still excites you about Berlin specifically? I still think that there is the possibility here of making something up from scratch in a way that is really very challenging in a lot of other capital cities. So for me, having started many things from scratch here, but also, you know, I'm so engaged with other people who are, you know, pursuing their creative dreams in one way or another. I also work with a lot of young people at my company and in general with other writers. You know, I still find a lot of inspiration in that cross-pollination that happens here. Any pet peeves about Berlin? Where would I start? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes. Uh, Sure. Um, The bureaucracy, the weather, 
You know, what is this I now? I think day 10 of gray that we've been having. <laughs> yeah, my, my younger daughter keeps joking that this is our third winter, like <laughs> the seasons of Berlin, winter one, winter two, winter three. Um, you always have the feeling when you travel from Berlin that you're traveling a long time to sort of leave Berlin and to get to anywhere else in any direction. So it's quite isolated. But maybe that position that it has sort of forces people to turn towards one another rather than turning outwards. You know what I mean? There is a, a sense that we're all together in this experience, sort of in outer space together. You know, it doesn't, it's not close to any other capital city, not really. It's not close to any other, not even close to the ocean, really. That's a disadvantage for certain reasons, but it's probably an advantage for others. Well, one of your world-renowned productions is the Netflix series Unorthodox, which is the story of a Hasidic woman who flees an arranged marriage in Brooklyn to start a new life in Berlin. In an interview that you did a few years back with Berliner Zeitung, you're quoted as saying that one of your goals in the Emmy-winning series was to show Berlin as a, quote, kind of integrated utopia. Is Berlin really an integrated utopia in your experience? My Berlin is an integrated utopia. <laughs> and if yours isn't an integrated utopia, I think you should look around and ask yourself why not. I mean, sadly, I think that's the case anywhere, right? I mean, I'm actually continuously shocked at how many people live in such, I don't know, monocultural, monochromatic, mono worlds, you know? I think it's a choice. I think, as I said, Berlin is a place where many people come for many different reasons. And I'm certainly lucky enough that in my work and in my life that has brought together people from all over the world and all over just all kinds of people. And that really interests me. You know, I'm like a white, middle-aged, cis, straight soccer mom, but I have a lot of curiosity about everything. And I'm really engaged in, you know, just talking to people about where they come from, about how they see the world. And one thing that's really exciting about my work is it's so collaborative, and I have the chance to collaborate with so many young people on their work and you know, be engaged in a conversation about how they see the world. So for me, that's just a huge part of what I love about living here, but also what I love about what I do. You know, some of the changes we've seen, though, in the past decade that I... Uh, in Berlin, yeah. In Berlin that I've seen here. Yeah, I mean, there is growing anti-Semitism. There's Ausländerhass, or, you know, there's hate for refugees and for foreigners. Um, and now we're looking at a potential new CDU government, which will be voted at the time that we're recording this, you and I, um, is there's a vote coming up in a few days about whether this CDU-led government will be the new government here. Yeah. So I guess uh, what I'm saying is that I think you're right. Berlin draws people. I mean, I ended up coming and staying there. Our story is repeated many, many times and from not just from America, but, you know, from the United States, but from other places. But it does seem that there is more tension or that there is more sort of a disassociation that I see maybe because I'm a journalist and I look at things uh, <laughs> more cynically. Yeah. Uh, do you see that at all? Or is that, again, something that you think is sort of an individually tailored thing, I guess, is the best way to put well, it? I'm, I'm probably not looking for it the way you are. I'm not a journalist. You know, I'm maybe seeing the world through rosier colored glasses deliberately um, to some degree, because again, I'm working in, a, in this kind of creative collaborative space. I can choose more who I'm working with. You know, I'm not reporting on other people. I'm bringing them into to the projects. But, you know, I don't think that those specific things that you're describing are different from other places. Like, I, I think that's a problem everywhere, right? And it's that Mark Twain quote that I'm always quoting, but it's 
it just comes up all the time, which is that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? There's so many ways in which everything that's old is new again, and it's all coming back. And certain ways, the echoes of the past can be seen in a lot of what we're experiencing now, but I wouldn't say it's only in Berlin. We're in a position to, we have to push back on that everywhere. And the choice to live in Berlin, you know, doesn't protect us from what's happening in the rest of the world, but I don't think it's worse here than it is in many other places. You worked with your husband on the popular German series Deutschland 83, Deutschland 86, and mm. Deutschland 89, which uh, Deutschland 83, I think, was the first German series to be aired in the United States, and it was a hit. What was it like working or collaborating with your husband on these projects? I mean, I'm married to a journalist who I very much respect, but we certainly get into it when we talk about our respective stories. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Like, we're each other's first readers. We talk about every idea that we have all the time. I'm sure this is true with you as well. It's an amazing privilege, actually, to be married to somebody who does what you do, who's as engaged and curious and kind of it has the same interests, simply put, right? Like, we, he, and not only that, he's an amazing dramaturg. He's an amazing editor. He's somebody that I really look to for insight into my own work. But when we work together... Um, I found it sort of difficult, but I think it was in part because he's very experienced at this and I came to it later in life. I used to be a photographer. I wrote a novel. I had sort of had a circuitous way to finding screenwriting, even though in some way I feel like it brings together everything else I ever did. Whereas he's made, I don't know, 500 hours of television, right? So there were situations in which I had very strong opinions about things where I felt like people always looked to him. And I don't want to say that that was sexist. It's not. I think there is some inherent sexism in this industry. I think it's also because he was so experienced. But it was difficult for me in a way to separate myself from his shadow, I guess, is part of it. So when I started my own company, in part, it was because I wanted to make an artist-driven, woman-driven, (laughs) women-driven project, you know, And, and my company, which is called Airlift, you know, it's very small, but we produce everything ourselves. And it, there's a certain energy there that's, let's say, different from the typical uh, German television production companies. So that was, that was kind of an outgrowth of my original series experience. I guess what I, wanted, what I want to say, what I mean to say is that as a writer, as a partner, as a collaborator, as an editor, I love to talk to my husband about the work. But I think that we come out of different traditions. Since I come to this as a visual artist, I've always worked by myself. I've always had my own companies. And um, and he was coming to it as a very seasoned television producer and writer. So in the end, I sort of went my own way with it, you know, and started my own company for that Does reason. he still read your first? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. still no, the no, first reader or whatever? The first reader. We still talk about everything. I read all his work. He actually has a series coming out next week that's amazing. Oh. You should interview him. <laughs> <laughs> What's yeah. it called? It's called Sam Azaxon, and it's for um, – Hulu in the United States and Disney Plus worldwide. And it's really, it's about the first black um, policeman in East Germany right after the wall came down. It's about this guy named Sam Mafira. I saw and, the trailer, I think, yeah, on Disney the other it's day. It's great. Yeah, so. It's really, really <laughs> awesome. And there, his premiere is tonight. <laughs> That's great. So, That's great. So yeah. we'll have to definitely look out for that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that your production company is called Airlift or Studio Airlift. Why did you choose that name? Well, um, the Berlin Airlift was a moment in city history in 1948-49 where the Soviets cut off supplies to West Berlin. I think one of the common misconceptions of this city is that the wall was in fact around West Berlin, not around East Berlin. I think that's 
a little confusing geographically. But anyway, the American soldiers would, uh, you know, they would fly in supplies all day long and they flew it into Templehof Airport. And when I first started the company, I had my offices in the airport. And um, actually, while I was working with NPR, at one point I met the candy bomber, this guy who had been a young GI and during the Berlin airlift and had been also dropping candy and gum for the kids who were waiting for the airplanes uh, in West Berlin. And he was an amazing guy. He was almost 100 when I met him, and he was totally lucid, and he told me these incredible stories of, like, flying between these broken buildings in the post-war Berlin and landing the plane on how the runways were too short and all this. He was called the Candy Bomber. I was really inspired by that. I feel like I'm also, you know, dropping my own kind of candy from the sky. So it seemed like an apt name for a TV company. Well, both of us are Americans in Berlin, as I mentioned. And another thing you and I have in common is NPR. I was a Peabody-winning foreign correspondent for the American Public Radio Network for many years and later became program manager here at the local NPR station, KCRW Berlin. You, in turn, collaborated with NPR on your popular radio series, Berlin Stories, in which different writers talked about their experiences here. Did that series inspire any of your subsequent television work? You know, the crazy thing is that the show that I just made, Transatlantic, was inspired, the the spark of the whole project came from one of the Berlin stories that was written by my father. He's an anthropologist. His name is Robert A. Levine, a professor at Harvard. And he and I were walking through Potsdamer Platz, not far from here in your studio. And there's a street, a very small street, called Varianfreistrasse. And he said to me, do you know who Varian Fry was? And of course I didn't. And he then told me the story of the emergency rescue committee in Marseille. And it was such a good story that I asked him to write it as a Berlin story. So he he did. We And it's this three-minute piece in his voice that he recorded in 2012, I think, um, in which he basically tells the story of the series. Who was Varian Fry? Fry was a 31-year-old American journalist who, operating in Marseille in 1940 and 41, managed the escape of some 2,000 refugees from Nazi persecution, including eminent figures like Heinrich Mann, Franz Werfel and his wife Alma Mahler, Hannah Arendt, Wanda Landowska, Marc Chagall, André Berton, Jacques Lipschitz, Max Ernst, and Claude Lévi-Strauss, helping them travel from unoccupied France to safety abroad. Here's the thing. The spark that motivated him to volunteer for the job of going to Marseille and helping all these artists and intellectuals get out of Europe in World War II was because he had been working in Berlin as a journalist, just as you came here. He came here as a journalist in 1935. And while he was here, he was witness to some terrible violence against Jews in Berlin that scared him really to the core. And he wrote about that for the New York Times. And he felt convinced that this war was going to very dark places and that things were going to get much, much worse. And even though he sounded that alarm pretty early on, earlier than most, people weren't really responding. So when the Emergency Rescue Committee asked for a volunteer, he he volunteered specifically because of the experience he'd had in Berlin. So, you know, Berlin is part of kind of all of our reasons for our work in that sense. So I thought that was pretty exciting. We talked about your dad seeing the Varian Fry sign, but I'm wondering, are there other personal connections that influenced what you did with Transatlantic? My father happened to know two of the people involved in the Emergency Rescue Committee, um, Albert Hirschman and Lisa Fitko, both of whom came to Marseille, you know, 
They had originally left Berlin and as refugees themselves, they're both Jewish and they're both uh, freedom fighters in other ways and um, activists. And they ended up in Marseille, ended up joining Varian in, in the ERC um, and later went on to live in the United States. And my father knew them when they were old in the United States. So it was like many, 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 many years later, my father happened to meet them separately, both Lisa and Albert. And so he knew the story, which is why he told it to me. But the making of the show was a lot of, I mean, you know, coming out of the COVID stretch where it was really, there were moments where we thought we would never go into production again. You know, I finished Unorthodox right before um, the lockdown started and then uh, wrote this during COVID lockdown. So the making of this show and the going to Marseille and shooting on location and being there with all the actors and all the other heads of department sort of collaborating in that space was kind of a celebration of what we do. And it was really exciting to go back into production, uh, actually. We started in February of 22. And um, many people from other parts of my work came into this project, basically. So, um, like, there's many actors who have been in other things that I've shot. Uh, Jonas Nye, who is one of the stars of Deutschland 83, he's in this show. Amit Rahav, who's one of the stars of Unorthodox, is in the show. Uh, Alexa Karolinski, who wrote Unorthodox with me, plays Hannah Arendt in the show. Um, and then the music is done by one of my childhood friends. His name is Mike Ladd. Uh, he's a hip-hop artist and composer who lives in Paris, but he's American. And he did all the music, all the songs, organized the band. He was sort of across the whole series. So there was a way in which it was a real multiverse project for me. It sort of brought together many things from the past. So you mentioned Albert and the attraction and jealousy between Albert Hirschman and Mary Jane Gold help anchor Transatlantic, like in this scene. You and Thomas seem cozy. <laughs> Are you jealous? No. Is your little date? None of your business. <laughs> but goddamn, huh? The U.S. consul. Word gets around. <laughs> Word's also gotten around that you've slept with every pretty little refugee in Marseille, so good thing for you, this city is bursting with desperate women. A French policeman today referred to you as a prostitute. What were you doing talking to a French policeman? Mm. <laughs> I'm not gonna apologize for using every tool at my disposal to try and save people's lives. Oh, please. The characters are real, but their love story is fictional from what I've read. What are the key ideas you'd like viewers to come away with about each of these characters and their relationship? So I just want to explain that this show is highly fictionalized. Um, there's, we did an enormous amount of research around this story, both in terms of the specifics of the Emergency Rescue Committee and also about Marseille at that time, sort of what was happening in terms of the early stages of the French resistance, British intelligence, all of that. But, you know, in fact, there was a lot of people involved in the Emergency Rescue Committee, and we, we needed to narrow it down to just a few characters. I mean, there was no way to include everyone. And, um, you know, the inner lives, you sort of take all the research, and then you have to set yourself free to write the fiction, you know? So there's, there's what really happened, and there's a lot of material about what really happened. There's a lot of perspectives on what really happened. Um, it's definitely kind of the greatest story never told. There is, in fact, a lot of material about this story. And then we sort of took these characters and, and set them free in our own story, if that makes sense. So 
their inner lives are fictionalized, their romances are fictionalized. We're writing into the gray spaces. You know, we don't know about their conversations. We're making that up. But it is definitely the case that Albert Hirschman and Mary Jane Gold did not have an affair with each other. They had each of them had an affair with someone else who was eliminated as a character. So they ended up with each other, which I thought was also kind of fun. And, um, you know, we had fun with that part of it. You know, our goal is to bring people into the history. It's not a history lesson. It's a fictional series, but it's also meant as a kind of metaphor for many things about the present, you know. So I think when you're writing about the past, you're always writing about the present. So part of the joy of activating these these historical characters on screen was to let them serve as conduits for us to kind of think differently about the, the present that we're living through, right? So Albert Hirschman was became a great economist, philosopher. You know, his he had an incredible energy as a person, and he had already been fighting in the Spanish Civil War and all kinds of other things before he even got to Marseille. He moved to America, and he became, you know, a, he's a brilliant guy. This is a very early moment. He was in his 20s. He was hadn't achieved anything yet, you know? And one of the questions posed by the story, right, is like they, you know, Marian went to Marseille with a list of 200 people, right, who were already famous, who were mostly middle-aged, right, who were had already achieved a great deal. And the idea was just to save them. But what about everybody else? You know, what about the Albert Hirschmans and the Hannah Arendts and the people who hadn't achieved what they were meant to achieve yet? You know, how do you evaluate who gets saved? And I think these are big questions and they're not just big questions for the characters in the emergency rescue community. They're big questions for all of us now. So I think it was interesting to look at the ways in which, you know, each of these characters were doing the best that they could to help other people and why, you know, and also the ways in which, a community that can form in a spontaneous situation in a crisis can be a salve against the crisis. Like it's sort of a light in the darkness is each other, right? And is is friendship and romance and sex and um, collaboration and creativity. And all of these things are the things that remind us that we're alive and remind us that we're human beings even in a crisis. So I called the show Transatlantic because there's a way in which the American characters are running in one direction and the European characters are running the opposite direction, but they're all running towards different kinds of freedom. You know, the European refugees are running towards political freedom. The Americans are running towards a kind of personal freedom, but they're finding each other in this intersection, you know, and they're finding a kind of freedom in each other. So for all the dog lovers out there, what kind of dog was Mary Jane's dog, Dagobert, in real life? So in real life, now I'm forgetting, but I think he was a poodle. I think in real life he was a poodle, but weirdly, it was extremely difficult to cast a dog in France. <laughs> really? Yes. And Why the dog, that? I don't know. Maybe they were all hired. It was like a hot summer for dogs. I don't know. We had a really hard time finding a cute dog. And this dog is really cute, but he is not the right kind of dog. He's also much bigger than the dog that she had. Um, actually, they all had dogs. In real life, Varian also had a dog. The, the U.S. consul had a dog. Somehow everybody... You know, it was not only having their own love affairs, they were also getting dogs in wartime <laughs> France, which is, I don't know, kind of hard to explain. But we decided we could have one dog. So we had a dog for her, but it ended up being a completely different kind of dog who was sort of unwieldy. His name was Risotto, but his character's name was Dagobert. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, it, you know, there would be a parallel series you could make just about the dogs of the emergency rescue committee, but we, uh, we haven't made that one yet. <laughs> So it wasn't a Jack Russell Terrier. What kind of dog? Or? The one we used was a Jack Russell Terrier, right. but the but her real dog was something was else. I think something. it was a toy poodle or something smaller. But we had this like really feisty, adorable 
kind of big Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> he was cute, though. Yeah, he was very cute. <laughs> One of the things I love about your work is the multilingualism and featuring actors who are native speakers of those languages. Characters alternate between English, German, French, Yiddish, and so on with subtitles to help those of us who don't or may not speak a particular language to keep up. Was it hard to convince Netflix and the directors or even the actors of your works to let you do that, to sort of go seamlessly between all these languages? You know, weirdly, no. I mean, I think, listen, one of the great privileges of Netflix is and there's and there's many you know one is the direct relationship to the audience that's probably the biggest but it's also that they have this amazing dubbing right it sort of provides the audience with what they need if you want to watch it in the original which i i always watch everything in the original but so it's always my choice to read subtitles but if you don't want to then you can watch it dubbed into your own language i mean they they dub things into so many languages that it makes it comfortable for those who are not interested in that so i love the fact you could have it both ways. I mean, I would say the show is about 70% in English, and then it has a German, French, Fawn, yeah, Yiddish. Is that it? I can, Maybe that's it. Just for transatlantic alone we're talking Tran- about. That's yeah. transatlantic. But, you know, I think the bigger question was when we made Unorthodox, it, that's really pr- like 40% in Yiddish. And Yiddish is a is a language without, without a country. So it was really challenging to shoot that. We had a Yiddish translator on set at all times, a coach. You know, it was very, a lot of the actors were not native Yiddish speakers. Some of them were, but some of them um, had to learn it phonetically. So it was that was very challenging in lots of ways. In this case, everybody was speaking languages that they can speak. So it was it was a little more fluid. It was pretty easy to organize like that. Portraying stereotypes or any offensiveness, even inadvertently, is a risk all journalists and filmmakers take when they delve into cultures or countries not their own. Have you faced that in your work? And if so, how did you deal with it? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. I am kind of a fish out of water in general. Like, I don't really, I'm an American, but I haven't lived in America very much. I don't, you know, my mother is British. I'm not German, but I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in my whole life. Uh, Growing up, I lived in many other places in Kenya and Mexico and the first TV show that I made was uh, the protagonist was an East German Stasi operative. And uh, I've never been to East Germany. All of it was research for me. And yet I was deeply identified with the character. And I think because I tend to approach the work that I make like character first, I pretty much always feel really identified with the people that I'm writing, you know. So the question of whether it's a stereotype or not, like we do a lot of research, but in the end, the fictional character is the fictional character. And you sort of breathe life into this character until they become real to you. And then there's this amazing collaboration that happens with the actor, right? Because as I'm writing, the character exists only in my head. And then with the actor, there's this active collaboration in sort of bringing this person to life. And um, I think that in that process, you're getting far beyond stereotypes. You know, you're humanizing a person. You know, a good example of this probably was unorthodox because we all have stereotypes. You know, if you just see that world from the outside, then there's many stereotypical assumptions you might make of what it's like to be inside that world or what it appears to be from the outside if you know nothing about it. But our goal with that project was really to get inside her experience and, and the reasons why she loves her community and what she's leaving behind and how what that suffering is like and what she's going out into the world looking for and, you know, to really humanize something that, we, you know, many of us have never been inside and and show the ways in which her experience is universal 
and, and relatable to people who might know nothing about Hasidic Jews. And so that, I think the goal is always to get past and through, rather, the stereotypes to the human being on the inside. So I need to issue a spoiler alert to listeners who haven't seen the series yet for my next question. But it appears Casablanca influenced your ending in Transatlantic. From what other movies or genres did you draw your inspiration? You know, when I was writing Transatlantic, I thought a lot about what it was like for the people like me, screenwriters, Jews, in particular Jewish artists, I guess, in Berlin who were exiled from this city, which is really my home now. And exiled to Hollywood in the 30s and we're sitting there at the like outer edge of the United States so far away from home watching the newsreels reading the newspapers and feeling terrible anxiety about what was happening here you know and that they were channeling their anxiety and their trauma and their worries about everything into kind of the tricks of the trade right humor romance all the genre materials they were making all these Hollywood movies like Casablanca, like The Great Dictator, um, To Be or Not To Be, you know, Lubitsch is an amazing example of this, right? Like, he never even really learned to speak English. He, he was the center of this whole community of expats, German expats, German-Jewish expats, filmmakers from here who were living in Hollywood feeling, I mean, you can only imagine what they were talking about at the water cooler or whatever uh, on their sets, right? Like in between takes during World War II, and yet they were somehow able to channel it into writing contemporaneous stories. And I mean, Casablanca was written in 41 and came out in 42. And it's basically about a transit visa crisis in 41. Like it it was written contemporaneous to what it's about. And I think it's just incredible that it was made, you know, something I read somewhere that 50% of the people working on the crew of Casablanca, which was shot entirely on a studio set, you know, in LA, were recent emigres from Berlin from the German film industry, right? So they must have been so full of panic, actually, right? But And yet they were, they were able to make Casablanca, right? Of course, that's a huge inspiration. And the ways in which it's a genre mix, you know, it's romance, it's funny, it's a thriller. I mean, that sets the bar really high to even say that out loud. I mean, I'm crazy, actually. But I guess my fantasy in my approach to this material was to kind of set one of those movies from the 30s free from the studio lot and go shoot it on location and sort of turn the color on. You know what I mean? So that was that was part of the goal. My last question is, what is your favorite scene in Transatlantic? I love that scene at the table where they're bantering. I mean, I find that I love that kind of thing. Um, I, You're talking about the dinner where, yeah, where I uh, love Albert that. and, and uh, Mary were, Jane are. Yeah. What were you doing talking to a French policeman? I, I love that that scene. Um, but there's a lot of scenes that I love. I think the performances of the actors are just incredible. Like, I love a lot of Corey Stoll's scenes as the American consul. I like writing the kind of bad guys. Yeah, he was really hard to like. Yeah, but for some reason, <laughs> I love a lot of his, yeah, like I, Luke Thompson from Bridgerton, he's so good. You know, you're talking about doing business with Nazis. <laughs> he's, you know, we had just incredible actors on this show. So there's, I'm, I love so many of the scenes. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm so close to it still, you know, it's really, I still love it. Well, thank you, Anna Winger. Thank you for having me. You can watch Unorthodox and Transatlantic on Netflix. Common 
Underground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action, and our partner is the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. We'd love for you to write us a review if you are on Apple or subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. You can also check out past episodes on our website, commongroundberlin.com. you cry.